you've got your Bible, turn to Philippians 1. Philippians chapter 1. This is be a shorter sermon tonight. It's a setup sermon. Uh, I, I'm a leadoff hitter. My job is to get on base because uh, we've got a big league slugger coming in tomorrow morning. So I just, I just want to get on. I'll even take a walk, uh, but I want to get on base tonight. So tonight we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1 for a little bit. In tonight's sermon, I want to focus on one question. There's one question I want to ask you, and it's a serious question. It's a sobering question. It is an adult question, and it's a question that we need to wrestle with, and it's good that we take time at camp to think about it, because here while we're at camp, it's good for us to get away from the trivial, the things that don't matter. There are so many things that really aren't that important that we spend way too much time focusing on. Focusing on the latest superhero movie or you know, what high school events we have coming up. Or as we alluded to earlier, some of you are focusing way too much on Fortnite. Right? Focusing on things that, a gentle reminder, don't matter. But our culture loves that. We love to place too much value on ridiculous things. To elevate the insignificant, to overvalue things that don't matter. If you need evidence for that, there's a thing called Comic-Con. Some of you have heard of this, where people will dress up like superheroes or Disney characters for some weird costume party. I'm not sure what it is. All I know is it sounds like something for 12-year-olds, and yet no one there is under the age of 30. So, we need to work through this. Our culture values things that don't matter. So we need to look at an important question, and I want you not to necessarily have to answer this question tonight, I want you to write this down as you're taking notes in your book and wrestle with this question throughout the week. Here's the question I want you to think about. What are you living for? What are you living for? What drives you? What motivates you? What's the strongest passion of your life? What is the thing? What is the person? What is the activity that's shaping all your desires, that's rearranging your schedule? What is your greatest motivation? Or, what object causes the most fear or angst in your life? What are you living for? It's a question that's been asked by humanity for a long time. What is the purpose of life? It's another way that's been worded, and there's a, many, many answers. One of them, to, the purpose of life is to be very happy. Dalai Lama. That's simple. Just be very, very happy. Another said the goal in life is to be the best you that you can be. This question has driven people for centuries and has produced all sorts of answers, from the noble to the bizarre. From seemingly good things to live for, for very, very strange things to live for. And so you'll see kind of good things, humanitarian efforts, people working on medicine for their life or trying to help people in need. Uh, You'll see others who seem to live for what our world would call normal things, trying to get rich. He who dies with the most toys wins. You'll see others who say, well, life for you right now should be living for education. You need to get that scholarship, whether it's academic or athletic. You need to find that relationship and get a ring on it quick because that's where your happiness is. But there's all these things people live for. Some noble, some our world normalizes. Others, 
that seem strange, that don't make sense. And we can make a, you know, a bunch of jokes uh, about our social media today and video games and all that, but people have picked strange things to live for for a long time. I'll give you an example. In the 1920s, there was a fad. Some called it a sport, but I'll call it a fad, like NASCAR. Anyway, moving on. Um, there was a fad called pole sitting. Let me say that again, pole sitting. Here's what this fad was in the 1920s. I guess they didn't have TV. People would, for sport, for test of endurance, climb up on a pole and try to sit up there or stand up there for as long as they could. Like a flagpole. Like climb up on top of buildings. This was their sport. This is what they tried to do for fun. And the man who I read about this week, who popularized this, who was the best, was a man named Alvin, nicknamed Shipwreck. That's scary. Kelly. Alvin Kelly was a pole sitter. That sounds strange already as it is, but he popularized it. And just so you understand, this wasn't just for like 15 minutes, like on Survivor or anything like that. He, he first had a huge record in 1926 when he spent seven days and one hour sitting and standing on top of a, of a flagpole. Friends would bring food up to him, send water up to him. I don't want to think about the restroom, but, you know, they'd have to figure out how that all worked. Three years later, through our, yeah, three years later, he spent 23 straight days standing on top of a flagpole. Which sounds crazy if the next year he didn't spend 49 days and one hour standing on top of a flagpole. There's often pictures of him in the 20s, of him standing or shaving. He learned to sleep while sitting down up there. There's all these different things that he had to learn how to do, and he calculated it. Over two centuries, he spent 20,613 hours standing on a flagpole. For those of you doing the math, that's 2.35 years. Now, that's a weird reason to exist, right? You imagine that, like, what, you know, what did you do with your life? Well, I set some records, let me tell you, right? That, that, that I was a human flag, basically. He called himself the luckiest fool on earth, and he got part of that right. Uh, so that's, right, that's his reason. That's why he existed. That was his purpose in life. Now, we might seem that strange. We might think, well, that's an odd way to live. There's better ways to use your life. But you know what's interesting is even by our worldly standards, right, what are the things that you're supposed to live for? You're supposed to live for fame, popularity, maybe a spouse, a house, money. But we've even seen that people live for that. They just don't do a very good job of it. I was struck by an interview from a few years ago uh, with quarterback Tom Brady. Some of you know this, Tom Brady, Super Bowl champ five times in the New England Patriots. Uh, He's very, very popular, has money, has fame, has athletic influence. A few years ago, he did an interview. They were asking him about his career and, uh, you know, how he's going to view his legacy. This is about the time when he only had three Super Bowl rings. He says this, and some of you may have heard this. He said this quote. He said he was bothered. And he asked the question, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? Why do I, I've got everything. Why must there still be something greater out there 
for me. He goes on to say that his friends tell him, you've got the best life. Right? You've, got, you've got money, you've got fame, I mean, you've got your own clothing line, which has made some, for some good punchlines. But you know, everyone says, you've got everything you want in life. But he replied, but I can't help thinking there has to be more to this life. Doesn't there have to be more to this life? The reporter interviewing him asked him, well, what's, what's the answer? What is it you're looking for? His response, I wish I knew. I wish I knew what else to live for. I mean, this is a guy, again, pro bowler, Super Bowl champion, money. His wife is a supermodel. And I know all husbands say that their wives are supermodel, but her literal occupation is that of a supermodel. So he would, by our world standards, have everything. And he's just not seeming to do life very well. What he's living for still isn't working. So I want to ask you the question again. What is it that you're living for? I mean, let's, let's fast forward the tape a little bit. How do you know that on your deathbed, if you get the opportunity to you know, be in your final hours and know that you're going to die, how are you going to assess whether or not you've lived life well? How are you going to look back and say, you know, I did value the right things and I didn't waste time. I know that you're a teenager, but teenagers are only told that they're supposed to not think about big things because that's the, the pressure from the culture. I want you to think about the end of your life right now. Did you live it well? Did you use your time wisely? Did you live for the right things, the right people? Invest in the right opportunities? What are you living for? I want to propose to you an example tonight. An example that we see in Scripture. An example we see from the Apostle Paul. Because we see very clearly from Paul what he's living for. Take a look again at Philippians chapter 1. Little background on the Apostle Paul. He's writing this letter to the Philippians, to the church at Philippi. And Paul is one of the godliest men we see in Scripture. He wrote most of the New Testament. He met Christ on the road to Damascus. He was radically converted. Went from a man who hated Christians and believed that he'd be saved by his own good works to a man who realized you could only be saved by Christ. Dramatic change in Paul. And he's writing this letter to the Philippians. And if you've ever read through the this letter, you wouldn't notice necessarily from the tone that Paul is in jail as he writes this. He's under house arrest, constantly chained to a Roman guard. But the letter is joyful. And his words for the Philippians are endearing. He has this strong affection. It's a joyful letter. It's an emotional letter. He spends a lot of the time revealing his own heart and discussing his own motives. God, by the Holy Spirit, allowed us to see this letter, not just so we could see what Paul says about how we should act, but to see how Paul thinks and even how Paul feels, and even to see what it is that Paul is living for. Our verse, Philippians 1.21, you know it. Paul says, in the midst of house arrest, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ 
If I were to ask Paul that very same question I asked you at the beginning, what are you living for? Paul would give one answer, and it'd be clear. He would not need to add a bunch to it, though he, he supports it throughout the rest of the letter. And it's not just an object. It's not a thing. It's not a direction. It is a person. My life is about Jesus Christ. End of story. That means for Paul, Christ was everything to him. He was the main focus of his life. He was the sole purpose of his life. Everything boiled down to this. Life was about Jesus Christ. But what did Paul mean by this? Here's what I want to do tonight. I want to do a brief tour of the book of Philippians. And we won't cover every single verse. And some of these verses are going to be your favorites. And we just will not be able to dive into all of them. But I want to show you what does Paul mean when he says to live is Christ. Because I think when we look at the surrounding chapters, we see Paul's heart revealed. He's not just saying this as some great Christian motto to throw out there. But no backing behind it. He lives it. It's in his actions. It's in his passions. We see it throughout this letter. What does Paul mean by to live is Christ? What does it mean to live is Christ? If you're taking notes, we're going to write down five things. What does it mean from this letter, according to Paul, that to live is Christ? Let's work through these and we'll go through these quickly. Number one, to live is Christ means you belong to to Christ. To live is Christ means that you belong to Christ. And we see this right at the beginning of the letter. In his introduction, Paul starts off with Paul and Timothy, identifying who's writing the letters. It's Paul with Timothy with him. Bond servants of Christ Jesus. That's a, a cleaned up word in our English. The, the better translation would be the word slaves. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. Now there is a sense where you could look at slavery in the New Testament. There's definitely differences in what New Testament slavery looked like compared to slavery in America. But at the same time, make no mistake, slaves were, though people, treated as property. They belonged to their master their identity was caught up with their master who they were was a possession a person who served their master these men are claiming to be owned by jesus christ they belong to him they belong to christ you see this this butts up against our culture a lot Because our culture is all about personal freedom, right? Be yourself, do what you want to do. If if someone's going to try to shut you down at all, then you just take to the streets and protest. You don't even need to know what you're protesting. Just protest and get angry and throw a bunch of half-made-sense tweets out there, and there you are, because you're supposed to defend yourself. Our culture says express yourself. Make your life about you. Paul's saying that's not the case. My life belongs to him. I am not my own. I do not belong to me. I mean, this is amazing. Paul, everybody knew that Apostle Paul was a leader in the church. And so he could have started this letter saying, Paul, an apostle 
So you better listen. You know, Paul, who, by the way, I've written most of your New Testament, right? Paul, who could have said, hey, uh, by the way, you guys might want to listen to me because I don't know if you know this. I know word might have gotten around, but um, I've seen Jesus. Yeah, we've talked, right? Like he could have played the trump card right away and just said, hey, I'm, I'm above all of you. But his identity is that he belongs to Christ. He is not his own. And so what he's saying is it's not about him. This is a good reminder to us. And if you're new and and kind of checking out this Christianity thing, we want to clear some things up for you. Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is not your genie. He's not just your best pal, though he is a friend of sinners. He is Lord. And for Christians, he is master. We belong to him. In fact, Paul will go on to say in Philippians 3 that as part of that ownership, that his goal, though he belongs to Christ, is to continue to strive for the upward call in Christ Jesus. He continues to work out his holiness, that he would better obey his master. He says, I'm not perfect, but I want to grow. And maturity is, I want to obey my master more because I belong to him. So what does it mean to live as Christ? You belong to Christ. Second, To live as Christ means you proclaim Christ. To live as Christ means you proclaim Christ. Paul is in jail for sharing the gospel, for sharing the news that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, for proclaiming that there is one mediator between God and man, one person who can reconcile God and sinners, and that is the man, Jesus Christ, who died for sins. Paul is in jail for that. And while he's in jail... Some people want to make Paul jealous. Read verses 14 to 18 with me. It says that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Because I'm in jail, some people are more bold. But some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Some also from good do, from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking it caused me distress in my imprisonment. In other words, there are people who are trying to make Paul feel bad to make him distressed because they're sharing the gospel. Say, look at us, Paul. Look at all the conversions we're making. What's Paul's response? What then, verse 18? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice. His joy is that the good news is being spread, that it's being shared, that it's going out. In fact, we know he's still sharing because he's telling the Roman soldiers that have him under house arrest, and at the end of Philippians, some of those soldiers greet the church because they've become Christians under the testimony of Paul. You could lock Paul in a dungeon and he would not stop sharing the gospel. And in our culture, we're so eager to talk about other things. We'll talk about the big sports game coming up. We'll talk about our Christmas presents and what we got. Talk about that new song or that new movie or our favorite subject. We'll talk about ourselves. But Paul wants to talk about Christ. He wants Christ proclaimed because to live is Christ. 
Third, to live as Christ means you magnify Christ. So you belong to Christ, you proclaim Christ, you magnify Christ. Chapter 1, verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope. So here's his expectation, here's what he's hoping for, here's his desire. That I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's aim is that Christ would be exalted, that Christ Christ would be honored, that he'd be lifted up, that the Greek word there for exalted is megaluno. It means to make big. And what it doesn't mean is that Jesus is a small deal, and Paul, you kind of need to talk Jesus up No, it's that Jesus is great and he's glorious and he's worthy of praise and Paul needs to show people the greatness of who he is because we don't naturally see it. We don't naturally see the greatness of Christ. So that's what he means by exalt. I want to show him off. That same word there for exalt is used in Matthew 23 to talk about how the Pharisees would, would lengthen their tassels on their robe. Right? They would megaluno them. They'd make them bigger to show them off to show how great they were. You were, if you're a believer, Paul's saying that he is a show-off. But he's not showing himself off. His aim is to show off Christ, to make it about him. And so Paul wants to magnify him, and that, friend, even comes in suffering. He says there, whether by life or by death. Chapter 129, he'll even say, for it's been appointed for us to suffer. Doesn't matter what circumstance I'm in, Paul wants to magnify Christ. Fourth, to live is Christ means you trust in Christ. And we'll see this as the week goes on. But chapter three, Paul begins by saying, if anybody could have gone to heaven because they're a good person, it would have been been me. Because I had all sorts of good works. I had all sorts of things going for me. But what does he say? Verse nine. That he wants to be, chapter 3, 9, found in Christ, not having a righteousness, not having a good standing on my own, derived from the law. But I want a righteousness, I want a good standing which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You know, if you look at the rest of Paul's letters, he'll call himself the least of the apostles. He'll call himself the chief of sinners. We said Paul, the bold one. Paul, the one who's pursuing heaven. Paul, the one who is literally stoned to death, or they thought he was stoned to death. They left, and he actually got back up and went back into the city to preach the gospel. You know what? why that Paul would have said why he's going to heaven? He said, not because of me. Because I'm a sinner. Because all my trust is in Jesus Christ the forgiveness of my sin. So to live as Christ means you belong to Christ, you proclaim Christ, you magnify Christ, you trust in Christ. And finally, number five, to live as Christ means that you treasure Christ. I suppose there might be some way for those first four points 
that you could kind of do those in your own strength externally. And there might be a way where you could try to put on a mask to say that you belong to Christ. You could be vocal about the things of Christianity. Um, you could say that I'm doing this for the Lord. You know, every time you score a touchdown, do one of those like that, you know, Philippians 4.13 underneath. You could know the gospel, say that you trust in Christ. But this one's in the heart. Because to really say to live as Christ means you treasure Christ. Take a look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Paul says, let's start in verse 7. He says, whatever things were gained to me, he's talking about the good works that would have saved him, says I count those things as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying you could take everything the world has to offer, all the fame, all the followers, all the relationships, all the fancy vacations and fancy cars, and I don't want any of it because I want Christ because he is better. Because he's better and brings more joy and he's a greater treasure than all those things could offer. Notice even what he says, he's not just talking about heaven. Because what does he say there? He says that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him. So verse 9, he's going to say, I want to gain that salvation. But verse 8, he's talking about knowing Christ. That I might gain him personally. That I might be with him. That I might be in fellowship with the Son of God. That I might know him. This is a better treasure. This is where my true delight is. This is not just an obligation for Paul. He doesn't just associate with Christ because ah, I know I really should. No, he's saying, forget that world. I want this. This is what I want. This is what it looked like for Paul to follow Christ. We see he said he belonged to Christ, proclaimed Christ. He magnified Christ, trusted Christ, and he treasured Christ. Now, you might be thinking, Josh, that's great, but, I mean, wasn't Paul kind of awesome, right? I mean, isn't that like varsity-level Christianity there? Uh, Wasn't he just like this kind of amazing thing? It's great that he showed us his own heart, but maybe that's good for Paul. I mean, didn't he write the New Testament? Didn't Paul see Jesus? Uh, Josh, didn't people take religion a lot more serious back then? I mean, we have science now. Religion has moral value, but it's not something to base your life on. I don't think Paul wrote these things just to talk about his own heart. He has an aim here. And here's his aim. He wants the Philippians to emulate him. He wants the Philippians to mimic him. And by extension, he wants you to do the same thing. It's all over this book that we see this. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 17. 
Chapter 3, verse 17, says, Brethren, join in following my example. Verse 15, he says, Those of you who are mature have the same attitude that he has. Chapter 4, verse 9, take a look, one page over. says, These things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Do them. These things I'm telling you that you're seeing me do, do them as well. It says in chapter 1, verse 27, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, to have that same Christ-centered focus. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, he puts forth the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Not just to say, hey, these guys are awesome, but he's saying, mimic them also. See, Paul is not just saying that for him to live is Christ. He's telling the Philippians, and by extension, every person in the room this evening, you need to say, to live is Christ. You need to make your life about Christ. In fact, that's the reason why we were created. Colossians 1.16 says, all things were made by him and for him. So here's Paul. To live is Christ. And the command he's giving to you tonight, as one who's seen Christ, who wrote in the inspiration of the Spirit, you need to also live for Christ. So here's the question I want to ask you tonight in our short time. I want to go back to the question we asked. What are you living for? All this tonight was just to get the ball rolling. We're going to explore a lot of these things. Uh, We're going to explore a lot of these topics as we go throughout the week. What is it that you're living for, though? What is your purpose? What is your aim in life right now? Listen, I know what some of you are saying, your Sunday school answer. You're supposed to say, Jesus. But be honest with yourself this week. Don't just check the knowledge boxes. Look at your affections. Look at your actions examine, take the time to look, what are the things that shape your schedule? What are the things that are on your mind when your bed hits the pillow at night? What are you living for? Because while I don't have time to go through every little thing, and we just had to, I mean, do an overview of Paul there, we could have spent many, many sermons on each one of those points. You notice Paul's all in. This is what he's all about. There's no second option. He's not just kind of skimming the service. He's not testing the waters. He is about Christ. The challenge to you is to make your life about Christ. So what are you living for? Here's what the rest of this week's gonna look like. I'm gonna just give you two points that are gonna kind of flow through the rest of this week. We're gonna basically talk about two different things as this week goes on. The first is we're going to talk about how do you live for Christ? What does that look like? What does it actually look like to live for Christ? But the second thing, and I'm so glad you're here, especially if you're not a Christian. You might be hearing this tonight, you're just thinking, this is, this is weird, I've never heard this before. I want you to stay tuned in because there's some good answers here. The second thing we're going to see is why you should live for Christ. Why to live for Christ? Why to live for Christ fully, not just on some nominal, a few days a week basis? Why to live for Christ with every aspect of your life? Why do we live for Christ? We're going to see it spelled out 
But I still think chapter 3, verse 8 gives us our best answer. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. It's because he's better. You might be here and you might be thinking, you know, I'm not, I don't know much about this Jesus, and I'm glad if that's the case. You're going to notice a lot of things about Christ this week, but here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice the supreme worth and greatness and beauty of Christ. There is no one in this universe more magnificent than Christ. There's no one who's more valuable no one who captures our affections and our attention when we look at him. It says in 2 Corinthians that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's no one greater than him. I mean, you look at his life and you see scenes like Mark chapter 2 where you see that he can forgive sin. And yet a few verses later you see that it's not just that he can forgive sin, he actually came to forgive sinners. You see his disciples say to him, show us the Father, show us God. And he could say through his actions, you've seen the Father if you've seen me. I, I am God's final word who has shown God to the world. You see his power and authority in that he calms a sea and casts out a demon and heals a diseased disease woman and raises people from the dead. And you see his gentleness in that when he wants to get away with his disciples, 5,000 people show up hungry. And he looks at them with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You want to see power and mercy? You want to see justice and wrath? You will not see any more beauty behind the God-man Jesus Christ. By the way, at the end of his life, though, being God, yielded it up as a sacrifice for sinners. You're going to see why we live for Christ. It's because Christ is better. Occasionally, like to read through a, a little book. Some of you have seen this before. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. I'm going to read a part. There's a, there's a prayer in there called Christ is All. I want you just to notice the words. Because it's about living for Christ, not just because it's obligation, grit your teeth, do it. It's about the greatness of who Christ is that fuels it. It's in Old English, so bear with it. It says, I think of thy glory in my vileness, thy majesty in my meanness, thy beauty in my deformity, thy purity in my filth, thy righteousness in my iniquity. Thou hast loved me everlastingly, unchangeably. May I love thee as I am loved. Thou hast given thyself for me. May I give myself to thee. Thou hast died for me. So may I live to thee. In every moment of time. In every moment, movement of mind. In every pulse of my heart. It's the beauty of Christ that makes us say to live is Christ. As we see the beauty and the glory and the greatness and supremacy of Jesus Christ, 
May we be compelled to treasure him. And may we, like Paul say, to live is Christ. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this camp. Thank you for just the example of your slave in the scriptures who shows us the heartbeat, the pulse behind a complete surrender and focus on your precious son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're going to look at these topics for the next few days, but I pray that you would just help us. Help us to see what it is that we're living for. And I pray that as we hear your word, that you would work on our hearts, that some who do not know you would be drawn to you, that others would, that who do know you would love you in a greater way and be more zealous to live for your glory. All these things we pray in your son's precious name. Amen.